0: Confidence. It's good to have you. I'm lacking a little confidence this morning. I was working on a painting project the, this weekend, and I've gotten white paint on my hands. If you come forward, you'll see it. Pastor Tony mentioned before the service that I should say something about it. He thought people might think it's leprosy, which... Imagine this, worse than that. I went to the worship design meeting this morning at 7:30 in the morning and we went through our cue sheet, talked about the worship service, and afterwards I said, "Hey, I got some paint on my hands." And Janaya said, "Oh, I thought that was toothpaste." It's all over my watch, it's on my hands, it's on my arm. Oh this, is, this shows you what the staff thinks of me, you know? Like, we've got to teach this guy how to brush his teeth properly. Why, how would you get toothpaste all over your hands? Anyways, confidence. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, we are going through this sermon series. We're calling this Best is Yet to Come. This is our first sermon in our sermon series, Best is Yet to Come. We are studying through the New Testament letter of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And... Uh, We're thinking about this idea. I've heard Pastor John over the past year, probably say this dozens, if not hundreds of times, the best is yet to come. And at first I thought, well, that's encouraging. You know, he's leaving and I'm coming and he's telling me, hey, don't worry, I won't be here, but the best is yet to come. I I kind of, I I wondered as I've heard that, is that like a theological statement, a eschatological statement, or is that kind of just one of those pithy things that you say to encourage people, like someone graduating from college and you don't know if they're ever going to get a job or move out of their parents' house or anything. But you're like, don't worry, the best is yet to come. You know, it's kind of or or someone's going through a divorce and it's like, hey, don't worry, there's a lot of fish in the sea. The best is yet to come. And, and, and it kind of, I've gone back and forth to think, he's just encouraging me, or he's making a theological statement. So I put some thought into this and I've talked to him a little about this. And I'm convinced that that for us Christians is more than just something that we would put in a Hallmark card. That The best is yet to come is a theological statement. We're saying that Jesus who came and overcame the the grave and death and sin will finish what Jesus started. The Jesus who came and called our lives and redeemed our lives and made us his own won't leave us like this, but Jesus will finish what he started. The best is yet to come. And so that's what we're going to talk about as we go through this series. And that's really what Philippians in a sense, is about. There's this verse that we'll look at today. It's from Philippians 1.6, where Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it or complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And Paul knows that your best is yet to come that he's confident he's writing this philippian church that their best is yet to come that god who started something in them that they can be confident that god's going to bring it to completion and uh and so the question i have for you this morning is do you have that confidence are you experiencing that confidence do you know that in christ your best is yet to come We live in an age where we are overwhelmed by anxiety. You know what I mean? We live in an age where we're overcome by doubt. We live in an age where we don't have confidence. Many of the institutions that we used to put our confidence in as Americans have failed us, or at least they feel like they have failed us. And and we live in an age, I think, particularly open to doubt, to self-doubt to lack of confidence. The National Institute of Health, NIH, says that this happened even before COVID. COVID has greatly increased anxiety in our society. But even before COVID, anxiety rates were on a significant increase in our society. They, they write, anxiety increased from 5.12% in 2008 to 6.68% in 2018. That doesn't seem like a huge increase, but in the 10 years before COVID, there was a, 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 at least a significant increase. It says this, stratification by age revealed that most notably increased from 7.97% to 14.6.6% among respondents 18 to 25 years of age. So get this, before COVID happened, when we were living in a pre-COVID world, when we still believed that endemics were things that happened overseas, that we were immune from those types of things here, already anxiety, clinical anxiety, had risen in 18 to 25-year-olds by almost double, 7.97% to 14.66%. The Anxiety and Depression Association of America, yes, that's a real organization. It goes by the acronym ADAA, writes on their website that anxiety disorders currently affect 10.1% of U.S. adults and, get this, 31.9% of Americans between the age of 13 and 18. Our youth, I don't know if you've talked to a youth recently, if you have a child or a grandchild or if you are a youth, you'll probably know this, our youth are being overcome by levels of depression and anxiety nearly a third, 31.9% of our youth, are dealing with these types of disorders. Boston University found that, this is a quote, depression among young adults in the United States tripled in the early months of 2020 as the global coronavirus pandemic started. Just as the pandemic was starting, when was that? Like November? Uh, sorry, February, March, April, I think March is when we shut down. In those early months, they noticed the depression rates among adults jumped from 8.5% to 27.5%. Of course, we all thought we were going to die. We watched tents be set up in Central Park to handle the overloads, and trucks brought in as temporary morgues to hold the, the, the bodies of those who had died. But get this, new research from Boston University School of Public Health reveals that the elevated rate of depression has persisted into... 2021, and even worsened, climbing to 32.8% and affecting nearly one in three of American adults. So, so what, what the science is teaching us is that the true pandemic at this point, the lasting pandemic, is a pandemic of anxiety and depression, that Americans overall, and particularly young adults and youth, are dealing with anxiety and depression at astronomical levels, never seen before, that this was already happening before the coronavirus pandemic, but it's gotten far worse since, and it hasn't, we haven't seen it alleviate yet. Now, let me just give the disclaimer. I'm not a scientist. I am a doctor, but not that kind of doctor. I'm, I'm not a, a a person who has specialized training in 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 this. What I am, I'm a pastor, theologian, and I tend to approach things theologically. And, and so just here my perspective on this is that something's missing and that something is God, right? Something's missing and it's the truth of God's word and that's what Paul would tend to say. Paul believes that the best is yet to come, and that's not because Paul is living in great times. The apostle Paul, when he writes the book of Philippians, is actually under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial for something that happened in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the the, the temple guards claimed it wasn't true, but claimed that Jesus, that Paul brought a Gentile into the temple. They had him arrested. Actually, they tried to kill him, assassinate him, and the Romans arrested him. They took him to Caesarea. They kept him in Caesarea in prison for a a number of months and years. And then he was shipwrecked on the way to Rome, and then he was snake-bitten, and then he finally got to Rome. Now he's under house arrest. And he's waiting his day in court before Nero, the emperor, who, if you remember, burned half of Rome and blamed it on the Christians and was no friend to the Christians at all. But Paul, from that context, from that vantage point, can write his friends in the Philippian church who themselves are experiencing persecution and can say, I know, I'm confident of this, that God's going to finish what God started in us. And so today we're going to look at this, three biblical reasons, scriptural reasons for confidence in an age of anxiety. Three biblical reasons for confidence in an age of anxiety. If you know anyone that's going through anxiety, anyone that is going through difficulty, this might be a message to share with them. Listen to it first. You, you, know, you be the, the, the judge. But but we need, our society needs, and we in the church need to know why we can be confident in a world that sometimes feels like it's falling apart. What is our confidence based on? How can we be confident? And Paul's going to give us three reasons in Philippians 1, 1 through 12. The first reason is this, because God is faithful. God finishes what God starts. We can be confident in a world of anxiety, in an age of anxiety, in our own anxiety as we read the news of anxious things in our world. We can be confident because God is faithful and God finishes what God starts. Look at Philippians 1, 1 through 6. It says, "Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now." For I am confident, this is the verse we read before, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it or bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. There's a lot I could say in this text and as I began to sit down and write this sermon out there was a lot of background I wanted to share with you uh, background as we begin this study together about who and Paul and Timothy are about what it means to be a bondservant of Christ how we're all bondservants of Christ or we're slaves or bondservants of something else i'd like to share something about Philippi Philippi is actually a roman city that's a thousand miles from rome it seems weird but rome would set up these little enclaves which were like extensions of rome out among the colonies they weren't colonies they became part of rome in other words residents of Philippi were Roman citizens, and, and Rome would send veterans from their army, retired army officers, to live there in order to have a little bit of Rome in a thousand miles away from Rome to, to help them lead their empire. And so the, the citizens of, Rome had, uh, of, of Philippi had this special status they, they were citizens. They were Romans. They had a historic connection with the empire. They had more wealth and more resources. And I'd love to tell you more about that. I'd love to tell you more about how Greek letters are set up. This is considered a Greek horatory letter, a friendly horatory letter that starts with a a, a salutation and then goes to what they call a captatio benevolentiae, which is typically in Greek letters, uh, The the writer will introduce him or herself, and then write something benevolent about their readers to try to, in a sense, uh, gain uh, support from their readers. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul turns that captatio benevolentiae toward God and says, God is doing this. Not, not that you're so great, but God's doing this. I'd love to tell you more about what it means to participate in the gospel. But this morning, I just want to focus on this idea of this reason for spiritual confidence, verse 6. Paul says, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. I'm confident this because God is faithful. Because th- this is not our work. This is God's work. God started something in us, and God's going to finish it. Now listen to what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, I'm confident in myself, right? Right? You you think you think about it a minute and you think well Paul could have said that right I mean Paul is a trained Pharisee he knows the law these folks are coming from Jerusalem to make the claim which isn't even true that he brought a Gentile into the temple he could have easily refuted this th- this claim he 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 could have defended himself from the law by the law he 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 is an amazing orator an amazing writer and it, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that we could imagine Paul saying, don't worry about this bum rap I've gotten. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat this thing. I'm going to outwit these uh, temple elite. I can... But Paul doesn't put confidence in himself. And Paul doesn't put confidence in the Philippians. You now, that's what you would normally expect at the beginning of the letter, that you're so great, you're so wise, you're so smart, you have such great connections. But Paul doesn't go anywhere in there. He, he doesn't... He doesn't put his confidence in who these Philippians are, on what their status is, and what it means that they're Roman citizens. He doesn't doesn't look. That's not the basis of his confidence. And his confidence is not just like a Hallmark card, just a well-wish. Like, I'm in prison, and you guys are being persecuted in Philippi, but I know it's going to be okay. Just turn that frown upside down. Everything's going to be fine. No. Paul Paul bases his confidence, this is what I want you to see, he bases his confidence on who God is, on what God does, that God's character is to be faithful, that God finishes what God starts, because Paul knows that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews says, that that Jesus, he starts this We know that he began this relationship with us, he called us by his grace, but that Jesus also will finish this journey for us, that he's the author and the perfecter, that John says in Revelation, he's the alpha and the omega, he's the beginning and the end, from A to Z and every letter in between, Jesus is faithful. Jesus is able to complete the work that he started. Now, do you have that confidence? If, if I say to you, where is your confidence? What are you basing your confidence on? What gives you the confidence to get out of bed tomorrow morning? What gives you the confidence to go forward in a marriage when you're discouraged? What gives you the confidence to step forward when the doctor says it doesn't look good? How, how can you be confident when you pick up the newspaper or look on your phone and, and the head, every headline says, our best is in the past, Right? our 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 world is doomed what gives you the confidence to step forward and paul says we can be confident in this that god is faithful that god finishes what god starts that God has a plan for your life and my life, that God has a plan for this world that he created, that God's plan is to redeem your life and my life and to redeem this world, that Christ will come again and restore all things to himself, that God who began this new work in us will bring it to completion. That's the first basis of our confidence. You ask me why I'm confident? I'm confident of this, that God is doing it, right? That God is able, that God who raised Jesus from the dead can raise us up as well. The God who, who, who began this work in us will bring it to completion. That's the first reason for our confidence. The second reason for our confidence, you can see in verse 7 and 8, and that is you belong to Christ and to us. That you, Paul is writing from house arrest in Rome. He's writing to this church that is experiencing persecution And he knows they're getting discouraged. He doesn't want them to lose faith. And so he says, God's God's faithful. God's going to see you through. And I know that you belong to Christ and to us. Look at verse 7 and 8. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. He's talking to the Philippians, but he could be talking to us as well. Because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You are, get that word, partakers of grace with me. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I've experienced God's grace, and I know, I've seen it, I've got you in my heart, that you are consuming that same grace that I'm consuming, that you're partakers in grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul says, number one, my confidence is in God. God finishes what God starts. God's not going to leave us half done, half baked. God's going to bring us all the way through. But number two, my confidence is that I know you all. I've seen you all. I've experienced God's grace with you all. I I know that we are living out this same life of grace, that you belong to Christ and you belong to me. I've experienced that. Now, if you know the history In 49 AD, Paul went to Macedonia. Philippi is the leading city among the Macedonians. Paul went to Macedonia and started this church. In fact, if you're reading through the New Testament with us, we got about 150 people signed up this year reading through the New Testament. We're halfway through. We're actually on Acts 15 today and 16 tomorrow. And we're reading the passage where Paul is on his second missionary journey, Paul and Silas and now Timothy's with them. They're traveling from Galatia area, Lystra, Derby, that area, and they're traveling across Asia. This is Turkey now, if you imagine the peninsula that Turkey's on. They're traveling across that Asia Asia Minor. And as they're traveling, Paul's desire, his will, this is 49 AD, is to go into all the little cities and towns along that road and share the gospel with every one of those cities, bring people to faith in Christ, establish leadership in the church and move on. That's his plan. His process in this second missionary journey just like his first missionary journey has been to go into a city, to go first into the synagogue on the Sabbath because he's a trained Pharisee, he has some status there. Is to go through the Old Testament law and share the gospel and how it leads to Christ and then to go to the Gentiles outside the synagogue and share the gospel with them, and then bring them together in a house church and put leadership over them. And so that's his will. He's going through all, this town, all these towns, but as he goes through these towns in Asia, the scripture says the Spirit was telling him, no, don't go into that town. The Spirit was closing every door as he was traveling through Asia, saying, no, don't, don't go in, don't go in. And Paul was getting frustrated. The guy's an evangelist, right? The the, the man is a church planter. He's not out for a pleasure trip, right? This isn't the journeys of Paul. This is actually the journey of Paul, right? He's not just going around visiting. He's actually doing ministry. And so he's frustrated as he travels through Asia that God is saying, no, don't go. And then at night, as he's praying about this, he sees a vision, And in the vision, there's a man from Macedonia who's who's there who says, come over here and share the gospel with us. And so Paul gets up the next day, and they begin walking down to Troas, which is the port city in Asia Minor. And they get on a boat, and they travel across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia and then up to Philippi. This is 49 AD. This is new territory for Paul, right? Paul grew up in Cilicia, which is... uh, in what's now Turkey, the southern coast of Turkey. And Paul's ministry outside of Antioch and Jerusalem has been all in that area of central Turkey. Now, he's going, this is the first ministry in Europe. He's left Asia. He's gone across the Aegean Sea. His, this is the first time the gospel has been presented in Europe. And he goes there, and guess what? There there isn't any Jewish population there. In fact, Philippi did not have a synagogue. You'd have to have 10, just 10, male Jewish people to have a synagogue, but they didn't have 10 male Jewish people because it's an enclave of Rome that was created to be this Roman city in Macedonia. There's not a Jewish population there. And so he goes out to the river, and he starts sharing the gospel with everyone that's there, and this woman, Lydia, comes to faith, and then she begins this church in her home, and Paul now, 12 years later, is looking back and thinking back and being like, I have you guys in my heart. You, you, you all were the beginning of sharing the gospel in Macedonia and Greece and, and ultimately Rome. You guys are the beginning of this movement of God's grace. to started in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now it's moving out toward the ends of the earth. And he's like, you guys are partakers of grace with me, and he says, I'm confident that God's going to finish what God started in you because I know what God started in you is real. I've seen it. You belong to Christ. I've seen it. You belong to us. Now, that's kind of how I feel about Christ Church. People have asked me, you know, why I came here a year ago. I left the church that you all helped me plant at Dunloring, uh, where I'd been for 12 years and came here as Pastor John had announced his retirement and getting ready to leave. And, and the, the biggest motivation It's just, I know you all. I've seen the way God's worked in your life. This is a unique place. It has a unique work of God in you all's life. I first visited Christ Church, I think, in 96, soon after we built our first building on Glen Eagles. And I just, at that time, knew that God was doing something special here. I came here in 2003 to 2007 and was your associate pastor. A lot of the same folks that were here then are still here leading this ministry on. And then 13 years ago, 2009, when I went to plant the church at Dunloring, you all sent over launch team members to be part of that. Bill Meyerley, who's here, and Amy Meyerley, were part of that launch team that came over for the year. They actually stuck around longer because after a year they said, you're not ready, Todd. We're we're staying longer because you're not ready to be by yourself. And other people stuck around. Teresa, who led worship for us this morning, She'd come down occasionally and play bass for us because we didn't have any musicians back then. And I've seen how God has worked in you. I have you in my heart. I, I know what God started in you, and I have a confidence that God's not done yet, that God has further work to do in us and in this place, that God's going to finish what he started and That's what Paul says. Number one, I'm confident that the best is yet to come. I'm confident that God's not finished with us because because Jesus is faithful. Number two, because I've seen what Jesus has already done through you. And then number three, the third reason for Paul's confidence is this, the grace of Jesus changes people. The grace of Jesus changes people. Paul's, Paul bases his confidence, just get this, I have already said he based the confidence on Jesus, not on us, but he bases his confidence on this right here, grace. That grace is the power that's transforming these individual people, and grace is the power that's going to transform the world. That it, it, We're not counting on you and me and my competence and your competence and my ability and your ability and my gifts and your gifts. We're not basing our confidence on that. We're basing our confidence on this right here, that Jesus saved us by his grace And Jesus will sanctify us by his grace. That there's an order to the salvation from conviction to conversion to new birth and new life to justification to sanctification. And that this entire order is incumbent on this right here. The force that does all of that is God's grace. Look at verse uh, 9 through 11. It says, For I pray that your love may abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. What Paul gives us in these three verses is a beautiful explanation, an an illustration of, of what this sanctifying work of God's grace is all about. That God's grace first comes into our life and God imputes Christ's righteousness to us. We're we're sinners. We're, We're broken by sin. We are objects of wrath, but God sees us through the lens of Christ's death, his blood, his his sacrifice for us. And God sees us with Christ's righteousness as God imputes Christ's righteousness to us. That, that's the work of justification. But that work is just the beginning because grace moves us along toward sanctification, this actual impartation of God's grace. Not, not only is God's grace imputed to us, but God's grace is imparted to us of the grace of Jesus Christ. And this, these three verses here is a picture of what that looks like. What is it, where are we going? What does this finishing that Paul is talking about look like? What does it look like when we're completed in Christ? What is it? Was this perfection, perfection doesn't mean the same thing today as it did then, but it, this maturing in grace, what is it going to look like? And Paul tells us, number one, your love may abound more and more. This is my prayer for you that your love, that God loving through you, we love because he first loved us, that God loving through us will abound more and more. More and more our lives will be driven by his love loving through us. Number one, his love. Number two, real discernment, real knowledge and all discernment that you may approve of things that are excellent. The second characteristic of this sanctifying work that God does in us is that we can, as he says in Romans, test and approve what God's will is. What he means by that is that we have this knowledge, this spiritual discernment to be, understand, be able to understand what God's will is. This is so essential to this Christian life. If there's any gift that we could use in today's day and age, it would be discernment and knowledge. Why? Because we've, we've thrown out the rule book, we no longer have the traditions, and we don't know what God's will is. We, we can't, it's hard to discern what God wants us to do. It's like in our, in our life, we could do anything. And so, and so Jesus, uh, Paul says, that as we move forward by God's grace in the sanctification we have the ability to prove what is excellent. In, in Romans, he says, test and approve. What he means is, is to be able to discern what God's design is. The, the third thing that Paul says happens as we move forward in this work of grace is that we become sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. That is a good description of what I want my life to be like, of what I'd like your life to be like. Sincere and blameless. You may not always agree with me. You, you may not always see it like I see it. I may not always be right. There are, there's a lot of issues and a lot of things and even a lot of interpretations that I'm going to get wrong from time to time. But as God works in our lives, our, what we're going to be looking like because of his grace is sincerity and blamelessness. I'm not doing it to you. I'm not harming you. I'm not seeking to take advantage of you. Sincerity and blamelessness. And then number three, being filled with the fruit of righteousness, that our lives, our sanctification isn't something that we just do, that God does in us for us, but that our lives produce a, a fruit, a produce of his righteousness. That is a picture of what God's completed work, his finishing work in your life is going to look like. Love that abounds, sincerity and blamelessness, discernment. Uh, fruit produced of righteousness. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're on this Jesus train with us, this is where the train is headed. I I don't know if they told you that when you got on the train. Did they tell you that that's where you're headed? To blamelessness, to sincerity, to love that abounds more and more. Did they tell you? They should have told you. When you took the membership class or you took the uh, confirmation class or you took the baptism class or when you came down to the altar to pray or when you said yes to Jesus on the retreat and everybody was crying on that Friday night and you're nailing your sins to the cross, someone should have taken you aside and said, this isn't the end. Someone should have said, this is just the beginning. Maybe they said that to you. But what they mean is the grace that you're experiencing right now is just the first taste. That God has so much more grace for you, and this grace is going to transform you. The God who receives you right now by his grace one day will transform you by that same grace. We're not going back. This train is going forward toward that completion. We're not looking back towards despair and to hate and to jealousy and to sin. These things are things of our past. We're moving forward toward this sanctification, this new life. And Paul can say, I'm confident. I'm I'm glad for his confidence. Sometimes my confidence is shaken as I look at my own life. Sometimes my confidence is shaken as I look at the church. But but Paul's confident. From a Roman cell in his rented room, he says, listen, I'm confident. I've seen what God's done in other people. I know what God's done in you. And I'm confident he's going to bring it to completion because that's what grace does. Are you confident of that? Do you have that kind of confidence? We live in a world, like I say, where confidence has been shaken. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you, if you resonate with that, but as you think about that idea, I just want you to think about that for a minute. I think it will make sense. It'll help you make sense of the world. Our confidence has been shaken. We, we have incredibly high anxiety levels because our confidence has been shaken. See, historically, as Americans, we put our confidence in the great institutions of American society. And you could think of what any of these institutions are, these institutions of government, these institutions of the courts, these institutions of our political parties, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, these institutions of the churches, the denominations, these institutions of club organizations, like the Boy Scouts, these institutions of of like higher learning, of universities, we put our trust in these institutions, and and wider institutions, like the medical establishment, pharmaceutical establishment, all this, well in the past 15, 20 years, and especially in the past two years, that confidence has been shaken, this is what every news article, headline that you read is about, That we don't trust these institutions. We don't trust the government. We don't trust the Republican Party. We don't trust the Democratic Party. We don't trust the courts. We don't trust the church. We don't trust the Boy Scouts. We don't trust the universities. This is what they're all about. We're shaking our confidence in these institutions. Now, I'm not here to say whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know if we're going to restore these confidence in these institutions or not. What I'm saying is, is that Paul's living in a world where he has very little confidence and the institutions that are holding that world together. But he has great confidence in Jesus. He he himself is an object of the wrath of the Roman Empire and the Jewish temple elite, which he used to be part of. He's a Pharisee who have turned against him. And for sure, he doesn't have any confidence in them, but he's more confident than ever that what God began in him, Christ will finish and that's true for you and me. The prevailing message of the world, and this is what I'm reading in the newspapers, what I'm hearing from people, is the best was yesterday. Not the best is yet to come. That the best was yesterday. That if you could go back, that the best was back then. Right. This is the message. You, the. The reasoning for this is always different. It's a lot of different things. It's the coronavirus. It's global warming. It's gun violence. It's Putin's war. It's terrorism. It's rogue state nuclear proliferation. It's the rise of China. It's social media companies, Proud Boys, Socialists, Slanted News. It just goes on and on. Whatever the subtitle of the article is, it'll be one of those or a million other things. But the main point will be the best is in the past. The worst is here. The worst is coming. And it's no wonder when this is the constant message that we're giving one another and that we're giving our young people that so many of our young people are dealing with anxiety. We're constantly telling them that you got no future. Our future's doomed, basically. That This is a message that we're hearing. We know this isn't true. The reason that we hear this is because the media companies want us to spend more than one second looking at their headline. And if their headline said... Uh, unemployment's actually really low, you'd be like, flip, 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 you know. It's got to be doom and gloom is coming. We might not survive. It has, so, so we know why this is, but, but we, we're communicating a message that, that we can't trust what we've always put our trust in. Well, listen, that, that may be true, that may not be true. I tend not to think it's entirely true. But beyond all that, We who are believers, we know we can put our trust in Christ. That Christ is the same today, yesterday, tomorrow, that Christ doesn't change. And and here's the main idea, is that you can be confident that Jesus isn't finished with you. You can be confident that Jesus isn't finished with us. We can be confident that God is going to bring us through. That whatever happens in Washington or whatever happens in Rome, Paul doesn't know but he's confident that God's kingdom is coming, that, that a new earth and a new heaven is being built, that, that Jesus will win, and that Paul in Christ will win. Now, we live in an age where a lot of us feel this hopelessness. And there may be folks here that feel that hopelessness. Maybe your kids, or your grandkids, you can tell you've talked to them. They're, they're overcome with this hopelessness. And, and my, my wish in this message is to give hope, is to have you hear that that is not the scriptural message. The, the, the biblical message is that, is that God is with you, that God started something real in you, that God is a God who brings it to completion, that it's genuine, it's true, and when God brings it to completion in your life and my life, it's going to be a beautiful thing. The best is yet to come you hear what i'm saying the best is yet to come that's not a pithy saying of me saying "Wow, it looks bad out there let me say something encouraging the best is yet to come that is a scriptural theological biblical idea that you can build your life on in any circumstance the best is yet to come let's pray that might be so lord god thank you for this truth of your word thank you that You've given us this confidence, and I pray, Lord, that you'd give us even more, that there are folks here who are just beginning to understand your love, your grace, and I pray, Lord, that you would begin a work in them. You're the author and the perfecter, the first and the last, and may this be a morning where if we've never said yes, Jesus, I want that kingdom, I want that love, I want that new life, I want that forgiveness, that, Lord, today may be a day for us to say yes. And then for we who've been on this journey for a long time and we who sometimes have felt beat up by the world and we who are struggling with anxiety and we who don't know if the best is yet to come for us, may today be a day when we recognize by your grace, by your Holy Spirit, that Lord, we're yours, that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion, that no loss, that no attack that, that no confinement, that no accusation, that no sin, that no struggle can ever keep us from what you designed us for, that you who began will complete, will perfect the work that you started in us, and we pray that today would be that day, that you would begin to take deeper hold of our life, that you would fill us with a love that abounds, that you'd give us discernment, that you would help us to understand your excellent way, that our lives may produce the fruit of your righteousness so that this world may know you, Lord Jesus, through us, your church. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.